Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays when we sit down with Smart Karma Insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. Thank you for being with us and enjoy the episode. All right. Good day to everyone and welcome to this week's Smart Karma webinar. This is your host Pranav Rao from Smart Karma's research team. Today, we have Nicholas Van Broekhoven with us, who will be going over small and mid-cap ideas in Singapore. Nicholas, over to you. Thank you, Pranav. Thanks for the, making the time. So good afternoon, everyone. I'll give a very brief introduction about myself. So I was on the buy side between 2003 2016 first for an insurance company in Luxembourg and afterwards for Value Square, which was a boutique asset management company out of Belgium. And I moved to Singapore for them in 2013 to set up their office there. Uh, I've been uh, managing since 2017, managing my own money and writing for Smart Karma uh, since February, 2017. Uh, my insights have been published in Bloomberg, Financial Times and you know various other news outlets. Uh, in Singapore, uh, I was in, this is from a few years ago, in April 2019, I was chosen by the SGX and Straits Times to come on a, a panel of people to talk mostly about Singapore investment ideas. Um, so I'm quite uh, you know, knowledgeable about many Singapore-based companies and, and the background of some of the, the management. On Smart Karma, this is, uh, I've written 228 insights uh, since February 2017, you know, and you can see how many uh, views these insights have had over the, over the years. In terms of companies that I write about, AEM and SunPower are definitely some of the companies I've written about the most, but I've also written about Valuetronics quite a bit and uh, Procury at a, at a certain, certain time. So not, not uh, for example, it also shows Intel. I, mean, I don't write about Intel, but it's, you know, when, when you talk about AEM, you, you reference Intel. So that's why it shows up here in the, on the distribution. So basically that was, a, you know, two minute intro about myself. What am I looking for when I'm looking for stock ideas? I'm looking for bottom-up ideas. I mean, I'm not a macro investor. I'm not a FX investor. I don't uh, like to make these big, big calls. I mean, I, as I, you know, I don't think I'm capable in, in providing any real uh, insight. So I just focus on on things where I can think I see value, and uh, and that I, that I generally end up with small cap companies who are less followed, and where I think there's a bigger asymmetry between what the market sometimes knows and what is going on at these companies, and that could lead to uh, you know interesting returns for investors. One pushback that you immediately get usually is that, ah, but yeah, but small caps are very liquid. Um, and in a certain sense, that's true. And some stuff, you know, will we'll trade by appointment. But other things, you know, given the right setup, can go from very uh, illiquid to very liquid very fast. And I've, uh, over the years, also on ideas that I've written on Smart Karma, seen that on a number of occasions that actually happens. And then these things trade into millions a day and then they attract a whole set of new investors. Um, so when you're early on those uh, ideas, you can really make very good returns. So this is what my idea of investing is, you know, the risk and the reward. So if I'm wrong, hopefully I don't lose too much. And if I'm right, I could win a lot. And, um, you know, and, and, I, and, and, and ideally, these companies would pay some dividends. So I get paid along the way to wait uh, if the ideas don't work uh, immediately. 
whenever I put up an investment idea, I always say they're longer term, so 12 months plus at least. I'm very bad at making short-term, you know, directional calls on, on companies. Um, so I, I really try to focus on, on what they longer term could be. I like back of the envelope calculations. You know, it's uh, it's a bit like Buffett once said in one of his annual meetings, when you when you see in a, an overweight person on the side of the street, you don't know exactly how overweight they are, but you know that they have too much weight. It's a bit like with a stock. You sometimes you don't know exactly how cheap they are, but you you know okay this, these things are undervalued, and and that you know combined with the alignment between shareholders and management, we're looking for. I don't mind if management is paid well, but that also needs to be linked to how the shareholders are, are treated in terms of you know either with buybacks or dividends or you know uh, good communication uh, towards the investors. So Buffett, to, to circle back to him, I mean, I, I've, I went to Omaha uh, four or five times, um, 15 years, 15, 16, 17 years ago, when, the, when, the, when it was not broadcast yet. So when you would basically, you could go there and you actually, you, know, you would have a private audience uh, after the annual meeting where Buffett would come and meet all the international investors, uh, as there were not so many as there are today or five years ago, because the last two years, there has been no physical meeting. But anyway, I've, I'm, you know, as many value-oriented investors, they've read a lot of Buffett work, and Buffett likes to say that he needs elephants in today, Berkshire, because he's so big. But as a small cap investor, assuming that's why you're on this call, because you you have the ability to invest in small cap companies either privately or in your fund or or your family, um, you know, you uh, you know, we, we just need a, a mouse. We don't we, we need we need small stuff. We don't need big stuff. And the small, we just need a few of them as well. We don't need uh, 50 ideas a year. We need, you know, a handful to uh, to really, you know, uh, at least that's my that's my view. You know, you, you need to have a, some diversification, but not not a, not 50 or 100 stocks because uh, it's impossible to track. So um, with that, you know, we'll go into the ideas. This was basically five companies that are Singapore uh, listed. The market caps are all in Sing dollars. Um, and this is the performance year to date. So let's get into it. Uh, we have uh, Rex, which is an, uh, an oil company. Um, the company listed in 2012, I think, or 2013. And the, uh, it was listed as a technology play, as a virtual drilling technology play on the SGX. What they did and what they promised investors is that with their virtual drilling technology, they would help uh, oil companies find the best locations to uh, to look for oil, to hunt for oil. And um, the company was IPO, went to 80 cents. Uh, they did another capital raise after, shortly after the IPO. It was very popular. Then the oil price uh, subsequently collapsed from about $130 to what, $10, $20. Um, and the stock fell from 80 cents to 4 cents. Um, so it was completely beaten down at a certain point. It was trading below cash on the balance sheet. Uh, it, it, was, it was, you know, very absurd about two years ago. Uh, since then, you know, we've gone from four cents to about 23 cents, still half IPO is 50 cents or so, and we're still halfway uh, down. Anyway, for more background on all these companies, you know, I cannot, given the time constraint, I cannot go into every history of every company in detail, but if you type these names into Smart Karma on these insights. I usually, the first one I write, I do go give some historical background how, how these companies evolve. So Rex today 
has gone from this virtual drilling technology into an oil producer. And so mainly they are producing oil in Oman, so in the Middle East, where they produce about 11,000 barrels a day. They now, since this year, they've started giving you monthly production updates. So if you know the price of oil, average it over a month, give a little bit of a discount for the Oman crude, uh, which type they have, you know, you, you can multiply and see how much revenue they will be generating. And there's some percentage that goes to the Oman government and there's some taxes, et cetera. But you can have a pretty good idea how much money they're going to be generating. And so they will have results this Friday. I think this is the results, the earnings date. And uh, I'm expecting it for the first time they will show up this cash flow in their earnings release. And I think that will be a surprise to the market or to investors who have not been paying attention that this cash flow is really going to add up. For the second half, the cash flow is really going to explode because just last month, they announced the acquisition of uh, Repsol's um, activities in Norway. And so these are producing, uh, one, one, one asset is a producing asset, the Braga field. And this will, and this will once the transaction closes, uh, estimated in September, they will, it will be backdated to January uh, 2021. So in the second half cash flow statement, the full production from January until September will all be recognized to Rex in uh, the second half of this year. So that should bring an enormous amount of cash flow to them as well. And uh, and, this is on top of their Oman producing assets. It makes this very interesting. Then yesterday evening, they made another announcement that they're buying more uh, into more assets and licenses in Norway which uh, makes me, uh, this is a deal with AkerBP. You can check the announcement out on the SGX uh, website. And so, so this makes me uh, quite bullish on the name. I think there's a lot of angles here to create a lot of value. You know, I think it's very cheap on a cash flow basis. I think if my calculations, which I've laid out in some of my previous stuff, is ballpark correct, you're, this thing is trading at two and a half, three and a half, I mean, depending on the oil price, uh, cash flow. That's, you know, mentioning the oil price is, of course, also the big risk here, because if the oil price goes back to $30 or, you know, $40, then, you know, this investment, you know, is not so profitable because then they cannot extract the oil at at a profit. Um, So that's with any commodity player, that's always the risk. Assuming that oil stays $60, $70 or has upside, this, I think, becomes a very attractive company. I also think there's a very high chance of M&A in some way, shape or form. That could be also that they spin out their Norwegian assets and list them in Norway and keep the Oman assets on the Singapore entity, or they could sell themselves outright. The reason I'm saying is that the main shareholders here are two brothers, Swedish uh, Swedish nationals. Uh, they are uh, late 70s uh, of age, and I think they would want to uh, sell eventually at some point point and to uh, you know realize their uh, their investment in Rex. I don't, I don't think this company will be around in a few years time as in its current form. Also the chairman is also uh, you know in his 70s and I think um, he will also want to uh, cash out his chips. So I think there's a lot of things that are, are very interesting here. The one the one big wild card is the oil price. I mean if that goes you know collapses for whatever reason then this is not a very interesting idea anymore. Uh, AEM is a second idea. This is a, a tech uh, company. In Singapore, they supply test handlers to Intel mostly. Uh, so Intel up until last year was 90% of the revenue. Um, so this is uh, the risk and also shows you how important AEM is for Intel. But it also, of course, you know, 
is the risk that many people will say, yeah, but what if Intel walks away? Then AEM is left stranded with no other customers. So that there is there is truth to uh, to both uh, those arguments. But what is I think very interesting is just over the last week, they there was a earnings announcement on Friday, and then the stock got halted, and it was announced that Temasek, you know, this, the large Singapore sovereign wealth fund, would be buying 10% of the company at a small discount to the last share price, and raising over 100 million dollars for uh, for AEM. So this is, you know, I think very interesting. It was also managed by uh, Morgan Stanley. I wouldn't be surprised if Morgan Stanley at some point picks up coverage and this thing gets re-rated to over a billion US dollars. And then down the line, I think there's a real clear pathway here for this thing, uh, for AEM to list on NASDAQ. In the US, as its key competitors, Teradyne, Coho, et cetera, are all listed there and traded massive premiums to AEM. Uh, if it passes the one billion US dollar market cap, it also will attract a lot more uh, funds who have that as a cutoff point. So I think AEM has a good chance to be a, a national tech champion, um, a bit like Nanofilm, but AEM, in my opinion, is, is much cheaper. And I think the management here under the stewardship of uh, Weisan, you know, who, who runs uh, Novotelis private equity as well. Um, has done a really good job here. Um, the free float is is very large. So in, again, I think just like with Rex, there's a lot of M&A optionality here. Uh, management's very incentivized to create shareholder value. There's big option packages involved here. In the past, whenever they, they buy back stock aggressively, that was my last insight on AEM. You know, the stock did well. I think they were doing that recently. Well, I demonstrated in the piece they're doing that recently again. Uh, so I think the stock is cheap. I think the first half was kind of weak. Um, second half this year should be much better. And then the real big excitement comes next year and the year after. In the first quarter conference call in May, they telegraphed that they think that by next year, they really should be in a position to sign another you know, major customer. So obviously, the management is aware that they're very reliant on Intel. And um, this, is, uh, this is a risk. So they need to diversify. And they have been, you know, their, their products have been in test phases at various stages with other tech companies. And uh, they seem to be quite confident that they're now at a, at a stage where in some of these uh, testing phases will materialize into, into new revenue streams. But just on Intel, I mean, Intel will remain a very important customer. Uh, you will probably have heard Intel also communicate late July that their desire to become, again, the market leader. This will require quite a bit of capex. This is also backed by the U.S. government. So being closely linked to Intel and being a, a key partner to them, and uh, I think a, a key part of their overall testing and handler solution is not a, necessarily a bad position to be in. So uh, overall, I mean, I'm still quite uh, positive on, on AEM as well. SunPower is the third one. It's about a half a billion single dollar market cap. Uh, here you see there's a little star next to the year-to-date uh, return. Uh, this is because it includes uh, a special dividend. They paid 0.2359 sing dollars in dividends over the last two months. So this is a reflection of the fact that they sold the MS division. So this was their manufacturing division, very lumpy business. Uh, now they are left with one business, which is, they call it the green investments. And this is basically they supply steam, heat, uh, electricity to industrial parks in China. They have it over seven different locations. And they are making this change in direction under the leadership of David Liu, 
David Louis, um, was the ex-head of KKR in China. He then set up his own uh, company called DCP. And DCP, one of its first investments was SunPower. Uh, he's on the board as well. I think he was instrumental in spinning off the MNS division and focusing on the green investments. Uh, the green investments business is a monopoly business. It's 20-year uh, contracts. Uh, so the, the cash flows coming from this should be very good. The company announces results today, I think, or tomorrow. And we'll have a conference call tomorrow. And they, I expect they will update the market how they will communicate this to investors. So how they will start to communicate how attractive green investments are, that division is. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited. I think there needs to be a big re-rating here uh, upwards. And I think uh, with the prior, you know, the, the private equity background of David Louis and, and, and his track record of how much value is created at certain companies, I think the last word has not been said about how some power will be, you know, we looked at going forward. And the fourth one is straight trading. This is a conglomerate with a very long history. You know, they also have a family of Tessiti, which or Tessiti, I don't know how you exactly pronounce it, uh, which is the major shareholder here. And there's been you know a lot of speculation that they would privatize this company. So far, that hasn't happened. I, I came about it. I mean, this was written. The privatization angle was written about another smart karma insight provider called David Leonard Hassett. Uh, I wrote about it with a different angle, saying that this was the you know, a way to get into the hottest IPO on the SGX this year or next year. But now we got news uh, last week that the IPO I, I wrote about, uh, the IPO of ARA, uh, in which straight trading has a 22% stake, is not going to happen uh, because ARA uh, was sold to ESR uh, listed in Hong Kong. Um, or at least they're now, there's a, you know, they, they made a bid and we'll have to see if it you know, successfully closes. But um, the stock popped on the news, straight trading popped on the news from 2.8 to 3.10 or 3.2. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's, it's a good outcome. They will get cash and then they will get shares in ESR, the new combined entity. But on, on the one hand, I'm a little bit disappointed. I think that the, the IPO uh, would have been very popular on, the, um, on Singapore. This was you know, a company that was founded by you know, homegrown talent, John Lim. He, the, the company used to be listed already on the SGX. Uh, was then delisted by John Lim and, uh, you know, was taken private by, by Warburg, Warburg Pincus and uh, Straight Trading and a few other investors. So, I mean, the stock's up a lot. You know, you can't complain when that stock's up 50% uh, on, now on the back of this latest uh, ARA news. But I think that if for some reason it doesn't, you know, ESR doesn't manage to raise the capital to buy ARA, then um, I think... Um, you know, they might still look at the IPO option. And then I still think straight trading is, is quite attractive. So that, that, that was, a, you know, it's been a, it's been a, good, uh, been a good one. Uh, the last one, Del Monte Pacific, is a uh, conglomerate. And Del Monte name is all over the world in all kind of different, uh, it's quite a spread out, uh, you know, uh, I wrote about that as well. On my previous insights, it's quite confusing, you know, which part is where. But Del Monte Pacific is a Singapore-listed one. They have a dual listing in the Philippines as well. And that unit basically controls the Philippine assets and the U.S. assets. Now, the company in the past uh, did some major acquisitions, particularly in the U.S., where they overpaid and they have a ton of debt that needs to be serviced. 
And one way to, to, to reduce some of that debt uh, was to uh, IPO first the Philippine assets and then potentially later the US assets. So the stock, uh, I was, I think, one of the first people to start highlighting this earlier this year, uh, when the stock was in the low 20s, it then ran up to 43 as the market started to realize uh, what this unlocking event could do. Uh, so the stock ran up to 43, I think, 43, uh, sing dollar, 43 cents. And But then we got you know, some negative news that basically the IPO of the Philippine asset has been pulled. They came up with some you know, mumbo jumbo about the market being volatile, et cetera. I think that's, uh, was, you know, was not true. I think they basically tried to be too greedy and got it, get too high a price for the Philippine assets. And that's where probably the key investors, they, they walked away, I think. So I think they should have just repriced it a bit lower, more you know, sensible range. And got it got it through because this is not the first time they tried to list this uh, this Philippine asset. It has been tried in the past, and in the end, it never works. So they, they really need to find a way to, you know, if if, if the investor in Del Monte Pacific wants to be, you know, have a chance of maximum return, I think they need to list both the Philippine assets and the U.S. assets. So it's not said that it will never happen again. I just think that you know going through this whole process and then you know walking it back uh, is not a good look and. Uh, I will be uh, hesitant to put more money to work there until I fully understand what really changed, uh, you know, the the process of why they did this. So from from the five ideas, you know, discussed here, I, re- I still really like Rex. I think there's a lot of upside here. Risk is, as I said multiple times, oil price collapse. AEM I also like here. I think there's still a lot of upside. I think there's now with Temasek involved and Morgan Stanley doing, you know this raise, I wouldn't be surprised for Morgan Stanley to pick up coverage and, and over time for this to get a NASDAQ listing. Some power I really like. I'm, I'm, I'm quite eager to see how they're going to start talking about only green investments. I think it would really fit potentially with um, you know, ESG investment mandates as well. And you know, now that their MS division is out of the way, that transaction is closed, uh, done and dusted, this will be a pure play on this, uh, this team. Um, straight trading has had a good run. It will be interesting to see if this ARA uh, sale goes ahead or if there's anything that derails it. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of neutral. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hold it, but I, you know, I wouldn't be aggressively buying here. Uh, and Del Monte Pacific is the one where yeah, it's, it's run up a lot. Um, but my worry, as I said, is the, um, <clears throat> the cancellation of the Philippine IPO and um, you know how, how we can now unlock value because this was really needed to delever the balance sheet as well. Um, so that with that, um, I think I am yeah I'm happy to uh, talk about any I you know specific idea in more detail if someone has questions or I uh, anything else I've published on I'm also happy to talk about. Great, thanks for that, Nick. Um, we've got a couple come through. There's one question around any views you've got on agro-commodity companies on SGX like Olam and Golden Agri. Do you have a view? Well, historically, these companies haven't been very good for shareholders. So um, Golden Agri, uh, I, kn- I know, I know. So I've followed for many years a lot of the palm oil companies. It's been a difficult uh, you know, investment for, uh, for many uh, dedicated uh, palm oil investors for a lot of the you know, ESG reasons. I think a lot of it is... Uh, is instigated by lobbies in, in Europe, et cetera, against palm oil, uh, but it makes it difficult for many investors in, in Europe with stuff to, to own these, these assets. 
that said, I mean, I, I like, I think Palmo is a fantastic, uh, from an investor point of view, it's, it's a great, can be a great cash flow for people who manage it well. But uh, I don't have any specific, you know, specific advice on Olam or Golden Agri. Cool. Thanks, Nick. Uh, a question on Rex next. Um, yeah. It's around ESG concerns with yeah. Rex. Is that something you are uh, thinking about carefully yet? Or is this too small to really be on anyone's radars given the size of the company? Well, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're for, if your mandate is to invest in ESG, I guess you cannot buy oil companies. So then you you know you shouldn't look at Rex. Um, I think um, to me, the, a lot of what's going on in the ESG world, uh, you know, we we, we want to get from step A to step B in like two years time, and it's not going to happen. Um, there was a very good article about that in the Financial Times recently about greenflation. That if you want to make this transition so quickly, you know, it's going to make things extremely expensive to do the transition. So it is. I think it's kind of foolish uh, for people to to expect these oil companies to stop investing, etc. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I mean, like, I, I've my I've view that you know a lot of the oil companies in the next decade will be a bit like the tobacco stocks in the past. They will be shunned by many big investors, but for the investors that stay around, they will produce fantastic returns. Got it. Thank you. Um, we're getting more questions on uh, companies we haven't chatted about today. There's a question on Wilmar. Do you have a view on the company given a potential listing for Wilmar Adani in India? Sorry, no, I, I don't really follow Wilmar. So I, I, okay. I, I, would, I would have nothing to say. Sorry. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take a question on a company that you have written about. And then, uh, sorry, I'm not sure if you have written about it. Um, the question's on MM2. Do you know the situation? What's your view on the stock given the latest um, news? Yeah, MM2, I, I followed it for a, a long time. It, obviously, I've seen how they, I, I think there's two elements here. I think that the, the cinema business was highly problematic when they bought it and they're now trying to sell it. I think Kingsmead uh, is, tr- is potentially buying it from them or they have some MOU. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a done deal at all. I think it will be below book value, but anybody get rid of it. I think the very interesting part about MM2 is their content business. You know, they have, I think, very interesting content potentially that could be worth uh, a lot more and that is not you know in the price now obviously it's a very dilutive rights issue so it depends if you're looking at it as a new investor now or if you have the whole background and the history when the stock was eight times the current share price so if you come into it as a new investor now i think it's potentially interesting it's also to to me is a reopening play of singapore i mean if things you know get better or less restrictive i think even if they do not sell the cinema business it will improve and, and then in terms of content, uh, they, of course, they have the unusual, that which is the concert organizer, uh, which can't get any worse, right? So it has to get better. And then they have Vivitry, which is this other uh, subsidiary they listed. So I think there's definitely value here. I think this, it could easily, you know, it's now six cents or so, six or seven cents. I think this could easily double or triple in a reopening uh, scenario. But, and, and, and I think, uh, you know, the, the content business is what I see the most value. But it's difficult to value. I think you would, you know, you could sit on it for quite a long time and nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, XYZ, big platform company comes in and buys you to get the, the content to put it on their platform uh, at a good premium to, to what it's valued. So I, I, I think the risk reward in MM2 is attractive now. Cool. Um, there's another question on another Singaporean company, uh, Bausted Singapore. Have you looked at it? 
Did you know the name? I've looked at it. I've looked at it in the past. I think the track record is very interesting. They had a long time. They, they have. There's two Bausteds. Eh? There's two. There, there's two Bausteds which are which are listed, and one of them was uh, I think interesting because they, at some point they were looking to to read their uh, their assets. Unless I'm wrong, that still has not happened. So I I I, I, I haven't followed them closely, but I, I do know that I've met the management. I've uh, I've looked at them on the mailing list. I follow them. But I haven't followed them closely. I, I, I don't know enough about the recent uh, announcements. Okay, cool. Um, okay, these are questions on straight trading. Question is around any catalysts to unlock a value at straight tradings beyond the sale of ARA? Uh, will they sell their ESR shares to raise cash after the six months lockup if that deal goes through? Any thoughts yeah, on that? Sort of, that's a very good, yeah, it's a very good point. I think. Uh, it's quite likely they would sell that. I mean, um, in the end, the, to me, I, I think they will. Yeah, they will. They will become a very small investor in ESR. Will they see that strategic? I think not. But you know, I think you you really need to caveat that with will this deal go through or not? You know, they 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 said it was priced at twenty seven dollars. ESR stock price has taken a big big hit. You know, it's below that. Will they be able to raise money at that price? I'm not sure. Um, so we will have to really wait and see. So I think, you know, straight trading is probably going to be in a holding pattern. I see a little downside, but I also don't see much upside. You also do not expect unless, you know, until ARA is, you know, uh, resolved, you, there's no uh, major catalyst, I think. Um, I mean, they have the, the Malaysian, uh, Malaysian 10 business, business. 10 business, which is interesting. Um, but, um, is there another major catalyst? I mean, the ARA was the real the major catalyst, right? So, I mean, we now, we don't have the IPO as I hope for, but we have the sale. And now this is going to take months for this to close or fall apart. And that would then have to go back to the drawing board and look at a relook at an IPO because it's clear that Warwick Pinkus wants to get out. So they uh, they need an exit. Um, and if this thing with ESR, the ESR doesn't happen for whatever reason, um, then maybe the IPO is back on the table. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good stock. I just don't think you, I'm not sure if it will go up another 50% in the second half of the year. Got it, thank you. Um, there's a question around AEM. Are there other Singaporean semiconductor companies or related companies that you have an eye on? Uh, I also know there have been quite a few privatizations in this space in the last yeah, so uh, the eight odd years. The the uh, there's quite I mean Singapore is really rich in terms of really small you know companies which are very so which are very good one, one of them I wrote about them all the way in the beginning uh, when I started writing on smart karma it's called micro mechanics it's a fantastic little business um, it's uh, very liquid sometimes it hardly trades um, you know it's amazing business a lot of repeat it's like a razor razor blade kind of business very small, but very niche and very, very attractive. It was really good dividends. Then you have Franken, which has done phenomenally well in the last two years. ISDN, although I have, you know, in the past, they really had some, some bigger issues, but Novotelos is the same investor that was in AEM is now in ISDN as well. So uh, you have Grand Venture where uh, Novotelos also took a stake. So, so yeah, there's there's a whole range of these uh, Valuetronics I really like. I mean, I liked historically the management. The issue for them is that they're really uh, embedded in China. Uh, and um, the fact that they are now trying to shift some of their production facilities outside China to Vietnam, I think is proving more complicated than they thought. Uh, but I think the management is really, uh, 
you know, really, really good in terms of communicating with investors. They're just, and they, they return, you know, cash whenever they can. But short term, I, I have a hard time seeing them them doing really well with Valleytronics. So I, I mean, I've written about them, you know, many times on the platform as well. Cool. Thank you. Um, do you have any views on the offshore oil and gas marine sector, Samcop Marine and Capital Corp? And, uh, uh, and the well, if, if my if my view is is correct that the oil companies are going to potentially be the new tobacco companies, I think uh, you know basically by restricting access of capital to these companies or you know making these boards uh, not want to reinvest in new oil field development, there is a good chance that you and some analysts in the oil sector are. are are saying that you know you're going to see uh, much higher oil prices uh, before then maybe oil eventually you know goes down a lot in terms of demand because people switch to electrical and, and etc and hydro or whatever the future technologies might be but i think there's a i think the transition people are expecting that will i think that will take way longer than anyone expects and that you know people governments with all their you know outlandish targets by 2025 and 2030 i think that's going to be impossible to meet so i think oil will be along for a long time and to answer on the offshore guys uh, if oil price goes back up you know 70 80 90 dollars because there's a shortage of production all these rigs will be needed um, you know to go offshore again and and pump up oil so i think uh if you are a contrarian thinker uh, owning uh, the large rig owners in the US or Norway or Singapore is a uh, quite an interesting idea. Cool. Um, we'll perhaps take two or three more questions. Uh, we've got two on the board right here. If someone wants to sneak in two others, that'll be good. Cool. Um, do you have a view on Silver Lake Access, Nick? Yeah, I used to cover the company uh, quite a bit and they had some management changes. Well, from what I heard at the time with the management, I don't think that they, they kind of lost credibility in terms of consistency of their messaging. And they, you know, started to renege on some of their uh, dividend promises and stuff. So I've kind of lost interest there. Okay. Um, there's a question on Rex. We're seeing high trading volumes there. Do you think this is proprietary traders that are involved? Is there a risk given Singapore's history of pump and dump schemes? Very good question. This is one of the things that I've always been wary of for Rex. It is baffling to see the amount of trading. Of course, I've inquired. I've asked the company itself. I've never gotten a really satisfactory answer. I think that is uh, you know, a really good question. I, I hope that it's not some kind of a, or these companies called Blue Month, et cetera, these, these things that then completely collapsed. I don't think it is, but the fact that it trades like crazy makes absolutely no sense to me. So I, I don't have a good explanation to that. And it's, it's, yeah, I should have mentioned that actually. It's a good, good, good question because it's um, something that you need to be aware of when looking at that company. Okay. Uh, the last question I've got on the board here is if you've got a view on the Jardine group of companies, how much more downside do you see in them? This is Jardine Matheson, Hong Kong Land, JCNC um, and Dairy Farm. Yeah, so I I, uh, I followed Jardine for many years. I think you know what they did to its strategic was very smart from a Matheson point of view, but not very shareholder friendly to say the least for strategic shareholders. 
they uh, they also did something similar with Mandarin Oriental, where they basically uh, shoved a, a building into a hotel operating company. So I have my reservations about some of the things that they've done to minorities. If I would have to pick one of the Jardine groups that I think is the most interesting is probably Cycling Carriage, as they control Astra. I think Astra is quite cheap now. It's you know, if, you, if you want to put a bet on Indonesia getting out of COVID at some point, um, I think Astra is a very uh, attractive uh, option. And Jardine Cycling Carriage basically gives you a discounted way into that. So um, if I would have to choose right now from any of the Jardine companies, Cycling Carriage would be my, 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 my favorite. Okay, uh, I've got just one last question here, Nick. Do you have a view on Capital Corp given their purchase of SPH or proposed purchase of SPH, I should say? No, no, I, I don't have any um, anything to say on that. All right, sounds good. Uh, I don't see any more questions, so I think we can call it an end. I'd like to thank everyone for participating in today's webinar, as well as the many, many questions we've received, uh, as well as thank Nick for his time uh, yep. and addressing our questions. We'll be sharing a recording of the webinar and slides with clients via the invite insight for the webinar on Smart Karma. If you have any follow-on questions for the team, please reach your Smart Karma account manager. Thanks again for your participation, and we look forward to having you on future Smart Karma webinars. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you liked this episode, please share it with your networks and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you at the next one.